The teachings of Enoch, the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ, a righteous judge. Moses 6, 57. Book of Moses Insight, number 15. In a previous insight, we discussed resemblances in vocabulary and phrasing between the prophetic call of Enoch in the book of Moses and the account of Jesus' baptism in the Gospels. We described evidence for the possibility that the authors of the New Testament Gospels drew on older ideas present in ancient literature connected with the figure of Enoch when they composed their accounts. And we suggested some possible reasons that biblical language is used so often in modern scripture, as many Latter-day Saint scholars have already discussed. For example, Royal Skousen has written that the Book of Mormon, like virtually every translation and revelation of Joseph Smith, constitutes a, quote, complex blending into the text of phraseology from all over the King James Bible, end of quote. In the present article and the next one, we will discuss two similar passages that have troubled some Book of Mormon readers. One, references to the name and titles of Jesus Christ, as found in Moses 6.57, and two, similarities to 1 John 5, 5-8, in the mention of water, spirit, and blood, as found in Moses 6.58-60. References to the name and titles of Jesus Christ. In Moses 6.57 we read, Wherefore teach it unto your children, that all men everywhere must repent, or they can in no wise inherit the kingdom of God. For no unclean thing can dwell there, or dwell in his presence. For, in the language of Adam, man of holiness is his name, and the name of his only begotten is the Son of Man, even Jesus Christ, a righteous judge which shall come. Apart from any concerns about similarity of vocabulary and phrasing between Latter-day Saint Scripture and the Book of Moses, some readers are surprised to encounter references to the name, titles, and aspects of the mission of Jesus Christ in prophecies of Latter-day Saint Scripture that are much more detailed and explicit than one finds in the Old Testament. Although Christians are divided on the issue of how much Old Testament peoples and prophets knew about Jesus Christ, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints embraces the belief that the details of the plan of salvation, including the life and mission of Jesus Christ, were known to prophets from Adam onward. Non-Latter-day Saint scholar Margaret Barker believes similarly and has written, quote, The original temple tradition was that Yahweh, the Lord, was the Son of God Most High and present on earth as the Messiah. This means that the older religion in Israel would have taught about the Messiah. Thus, finding Christ in the Old Testament is exactly what we should expect though obscured by incorrect readings of the scriptures. This, I suggest, what is one aspect of the restoration of the plain and precious things which have been taken away from them that is mentioned in the Book of Mormon. The Jehovah of the Old Testament is the Christ of the Book of Mormon. While more research is needed to evaluate possible affinities between references to Jesus Christ in modern scripture and sources inside and outside the Bible, we offer the following examples from ancient Enoch literature for analysis. In this respect, the Book of Parables, one of five relatively disjointed sections of First Enoch, has been a very fruitful source. Although we generally agree with the conclusion of some scholars that, quote, the literary connections between Moses 6 through 8 and First Enoch are very loose and more time and attention should be placed elsewhere, there are some exceptions to this rule, most notably between the book of, within the Book of Parables. Significantly, according to James Charlesworth, one of the preeminent contemporary scholars of Jewish pseudepigrapha, messianic passages in the Book of Parable, quote, 
seem to be Jewish, but contemporaneous with the origins of Christianity. The relevant verses contain neither Jewish polemic against Christian charismatic Christology, nor peculiarly Christian expressions and ideas." End of quote. Thus these passages are ideal witnesses of the kinds of Jewish messianic traditions found in Moses 6.57 that cannot be traced exclusively to Christian influences. We will now review the four interlinked titles of Moses 6.57 in light of these traditions. While, quote, most of the pseudepigrapha do not contain technical terms for the Messiah, as Charles says, let alone equivalents or analogs for the other titles listed in the Book of Moses, the first Enoch Book of Parables contains material relevant to each of them, as follows. Only begotten. The use of the term only begotten has a long history in Jewish tradition. The story of the binding of Isaac, the Akedah, in the Hebrew version of Genesis 22, describes Isaac's relationship to Abraham with the masculine form of the substantive adjective Yahid, the feminine form of the same substantive adjective, Yahida, occurs in Judges 11.34 as a description of Jephthah's only daughter. Importantly, the corresponding Greek term used to translate Yahida in the Septuagint Greek version of the Jephthah story is monogenes, only begotten. More, more significantly, the ter Greek term for only begotten is used in the Greek version of Psalm 22.21 a psalm widely understood as having reference to Jesus among early Christians. The Greek term for only begotten is the term used throughout the New Testament to describe Jesus Christ as God's only begotten. For example, the author of Hebrews explicitly uses monogenes of Isaac in characterizing him as a type of Jesus. Further witnessing the wide use of this term within the writings of the Jewish scholar Philo Judaeus, the terms only begotten and firstborn often treated as synonyms, were closely identified with Moses in ancient Jewish tradition. This is because Moses is seen as the preeminent living embodiment of the divine Logos, the word of God's power. Going further, Samuel Zinner sees Philo as inferring that Moses, the law-giving word, becomes a nursing father to others, specifically including the righteous patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are likewise born of God. Consistent with the spirit of this idea, the New Testament authors, writing from similar perspectives, use the term firstborn in Hebrews 12.23 expression, Church of the Firstborn. In this context, firstborn seems to be in interpreted as applying not only to Christ, but also to redeemed mortals who are, quote, entitled by birthright to the privileges of firstborn sons, specifically to receive the right to receive all that the Father hath. Thus, in the conception of New Testament theology, we can say that God made Christ, quote, the firstborn among many brethren, each one having been conformed to the image of his son. In summary, threads related to the special status and sacrificial role of the firstborn and only begotten son, as applied to New Old Testament figures such as Moses, to Christ himself, and eventually to the disciples of Jesus Christ, are rooted in concepts that go back significantly beyond the New Testament. The key to the meaning of this concept in Moses 6.57 is found in the immediately preceding mention of God as, quote, the man of holiness, and the pronoun in terms of his only begotten. As Frederick Borsch has argued at length, the concept of God as, quote, 
The man, of whom Enoch eventually becomes a filial counterpart, is at the very heart of the book of parables, as further explained in the discussion of the title Son of Man immediately below. Son of Man In hearing the name and name title Son of Man, Jews in the first century would have thought of texts in the books of Daniel and Enoch. Daniel 7, 13 and 14 records the eschatological vision of Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Significantly, the title Son of Man, which is even more prominent in the book of parables than in Daniel, also appears in marked density throughout Enoch's grand vision in the book of Moses. In addition, and even more remarkably, the related titles Chosen One, Anointed One, and Righteousness One are featured in both the book of Moses and the book of parables. After considering the sometimes contentious debate among scholars about the single or multiple reference of these titles and their relationship to other texts, Nicholsburg and Vanderkam conclude that the author of the book of parables, quote, saw the traditional figures as having a single referent and applied the various designations and characteristics that seemed appropriate to him, end of quote. This is likewise true for the book of Moses. The fact that the reference in Moses 6.57 to the Son of Man occurs in immediate proximity to mentions of God the Father as the man of holiness and his only begotten highlights the close relationship between these three titles. Further generalizing analogous arguments above relating to firstborn and only begotten, Borsch explains that the title Son of Man is also meant to be extended to an infinity of successors. Quote, Since the Son would ascend to become the man, and thus be the man as the Son of Man, it is not hardly to see how and why the true Heavenly One could be called the Son of Man. Logically, then, the new Son of Man, in other words Enoch, for example, should be called the Son of the Son of Man. End of quote. All this goes to demonstrate that the concept of the Son of Man as a heavenly Redeemer figure who stands in close relationship to the God of Israel is not a corruption of Jewish monotheism by Christianity, nor an invention of Hellenistic or Gentile Paul, but is an integral feature of Second Temple Judaism. Speaking specifically of Jesus' teachings on this subject, Charlesworth likely, likewise affirms that, quote, all three classes of Jesus' Son of Man sayings, those that depict the Son of Man's authority, future coming, and present suffering, were not invented by the church. Beyond that certainty, it is difficult to proceed further Yet, it is conceivable that under the influence of the Enoch traditions, perhaps indirectly through oral traditions, Jesus used the term Son of Man to stress his own charismatic authority that amazed his contemporaries. End of quote. Jesus Christ The name title, Jesus Christ, of course, derives directly from its Greek New Testament equivalent, which might be more clearly translated for modern English speakers as Joshua, Yeshua, the Messiah, the term Messiah referring to one who is anointed by God. Recalling the applications of the term firstborn and only begotten to Moses discussed above, we note Raphael Patai's statement that, quote, rarely is a myth as perfectly prefigured in a tradition many centuries older as is the Jewish Messiah myth in the life of Moses, end of quote. 
However, Pattaya's useful collection of texts relating to the Jewish concept of Messiah amply shows how far beyond its prefiguring in Moses its title extends, demonstrating its breathtaking scope and broad application since early biblical times. In the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the rabbinic literature, references to the Messiah as, quote, the future ideal Davidic king are far more prevalent than in any other era. Importantly, with respect to the Book of Parables and, quote, in contrast to Second Baruch and Fourth Ezra, Charlesworth writes that, quote, the Messiah, or anointed one, is portrayed as the terrestrial and human messianic king who shall, be perfect, who shall perfectly embody all the dreams attributed to the kings of Israel's past, end of quote. In addition to the symbolic association of this figure with the Davidic monarchy, Shirley Lucas reminds us that the king's cultic function was linked, as in Hebrews 7, to the earlier line of Melchizedek, the priest-king of Salem or Jerusalem. Significantly, and consistent with the teachings of Christianity, Charlesworth notes numerous passages in the Pseudepigrapha in which the Messiah ultimately conquers Israel's enemies in a non-military, supernatural fashion. For example, quote, with the word of his mouth, end of quote. Consistent with both the teachings of Moses 6.57 and Nicholsberg and Vanderkam's conclusions that the various titles mentioned in the book of parables refer to a single individual, James Waddell argued not only that the, quote, five specific epithets return to the same Messiah figure, end quote, but also that the, quote, authors of the book understood the Messiah figure to be distinct from the divine figure who is the one God, end of quote. As to the use of the name Jesus Christ, as used in Moses 6.57, there are precedents for advanced revelation of specific names of later-born individuals, including the name Jesus Christ. Alternatively, it does not seem impossible that the name was introduced into the text as a type of gloss, intended to remove any doubt for Latter-day readers about the identity of this figure. Moreover, it may be that the authority of an ancient manuscript refers to Jesus Christ with words analogous to the Hebrew equivalent, Yeshua, HaMashiach sits behind Moses 6 and 7. Each of these options work against any argument that the use of the name or title Jesus Christ in Moses 6 can be seen only as an anachronism. Charlesworth concurs with this understanding of the occurrence of the singularly Christian terms, titles, and scriptures in Latter-day Saint Scripture, arguing that if some passages, quote, look peculiarly Christian, this fact need not vitiate the claim that they were written before the coming of Christ. Specifically referring to the Book of Mormon, he notes that Latter-day Saints acknowledge that it, quote, could have been expanded on at least two occasions that post-date the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Once as part of Mormon's abridgment, and again at the time it was translated in the 19th century by Joseph Smith, quote, the recognition that the Book of Mormon has been edited on more than one occasion would certainly explain why certain of the messianic passages appear to be Christian compositions. Similar, similar possibilities present themselves with the Book of Moses. Although much less is known about its source texts and ancient redaction history, it was eventually translated into English by Joseph Smith in the 19th century. Thus, there is nothing barring it from simultaneously containing deeply ancient content and adaptations of that content for modern audiences. Righteous Judge. Remarkably, the single specific description of the role of the Son of Man given in Moses 6.57 as a righteous judge 
is also highly characteristic of the book of parables, where the primary role of the Son of Man is also that of a judge. Reviewing the relevant book of parables passages, Nicholsburg and Vanderkam conclude, if the central message of the parables is the coming of the final judgment, the Son of Man, or Chosen One, takes a center stage as the agent of this judgment." End of quote. Note also that the title, Righteous Judge, in the broader context of Joseph Smith's translation, anticipates Melchizedek, the King of Righteousness, and the typological connections to Jesus Christ evident in Joseph Smith's translation of Genesis 14, 25-40. In summary, it is significant that outside the Old Testament, the Enoch Pseudepigrapha are arguably the pre-Christian documents of Jewish origin that best prefigure the range of Christological concepts and titles found in the New Testament. Thus, to readers of Latter-day Scripture, it should not be surprising that Christological themes and concepts are also present in the Book of Moses' account of Enoch. Although the arguments we presented do not exhaust the questions that may be raised about references to the name and titles of Jesus Christ in the Book of Moses, we think these preliminary findings merit careful investigation rather than hasty dismissal. The cluster of analogous titles found in the Book of Moses and in extant Edict Pseudepigrapha deserve attention. Afterward, Confluences and divergences of Jewish and Christian beliefs about the Messiah have sometimes led to contentious misunderstandings. In this regard, Lucas provides helpful perspective. End of uh, quote. If Jesus' first coming is accepted as the inauguration of the Messianic era, based on the exception that his messiahship was authentically Jewish, and if at his second coming all the expected conditions of the age to come were to prevail, then there's nothing in this proposition that would jeopardize the integrity of Judaism as it now stands. Effectively, therefore, this invalidates the statement of Jacob Neusner. Is Jesus the Christ? If so, then Judaism falls. If not, then Christianity fails. This conception of the issue allows a move away from the assertion and denial that has plagued dialogue from the parting of the ways about 70 CE, opening up fresh possibilities and a new foundation on which dialogue can be built between Christians and Jews. Admittedly, admittedly however, plausible this may be, it cannot wipe out 2,000 years of persecution, mistrust, and hatred. Even so, if this premise is accepted, namely that the messiahship of Jesus is portrayed in the New Testament, can be rooted in antecedent Jewish tradition, then I believe, says Lucas, that this will provide a bridge to dialogue that has hitherto not existed.